Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There are three words that I came to dread as a classroom teacher, and that is, I don't know. Somehow, it seems like whenever it's time for review, students don't remember what you told them, even if it was fairly recently, even if you made them work over and over and over again on mastering the concept. If I'm being honest, the same thing happens in our home as well. Jude, what did I tell you about getting more toys out? Only to hear, I don't remember. But I think probably this tendency to forget plays out in most of us. We are, as the hymn puts it, prone to wander. As we confess at morning prayer every morning, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have not done those things which we ought to have done. It's for this reason that I love the book of Hosea, from which we get our Old Testament lesson this morning. It's my favorite of the minor prophets. The prophet Hosea ministered sometime in the 8th century to the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, prior to their defeat by the Assyrians in 722. Now, like any good prophet... Hosea didn't just condemn sinful behavior, but engaged in dramatic gestures to prove his point, much like a modern-day performance artist. The dramatic gesture at the heart of the book of Hosea is when God instructed the prophet to marry a prostitute named Gomer, with whom he had three children. At some point in their marriage, she left him, most likely due to a relapse into her old ways. Even though Hosea felt confident in saying their relationship was over, God instructed him to go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. She was in slavery when Hosea found her. We don't know what she got into, but it couldn't have been good. But he bought her back. He paid the price. And before they could be reunited, she had to be broken of her unfaithful behavior So she goes into seclusion before the relationship could be fully restored, a pattern which mirrors Israel's experience in the exile. The unfolding drama in the book of Hosea is symbolic of God's love for his idolatrous people. The idolatry of Israel is mirrored by the adultery of Gomer. Hosea, the jilted husband, is likened to God. Just as Israel ran after other gods, so Gomer runs after other men, and God is faithful to pursue Israel just as Hosea pursues Gomer. Hosea is preoccupied with calling out Israel's primary sin of idolatry, both in the form of their worship of the Canaanite god Baal, the god of fertility, and the way they made alliances with other nations instead of relying on God for protection. But the purpose of the picture of the rejected lover pursuing his adulterous bride is to show God's chesed, 
which is a Hebrew word that translates to something like loving kindness, as in Hosea 2.19, when God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness, chesed, and in compassion. The NIV translates this word as love, while the NLT says unfailing love, and the ESV chooses steadfast love. And these are good translations of the word, but they do miss out of the fullness of that word chesed, which really can only be understood in the covenantal picture of a lifelong, faithful, marital covenant. In light of this, God is sometimes depicted as jealous, as in Hosea chapter 13. He's also depicted as jealous in Exodus 34, 14 and Deuteronomy 4, 24. Yet this is not a petty jealousness derived from some sort of psychotic narcissism. Rather, this jealousy is based on the violation of a sacred and covenantal relationship, making it a valid and good kind of jealousy. If a husband is not jealous of his wife's marital unfaithfulness, it's a cause for concern because it proves a real lack of love. So it is with God and his people. When Israel forgot their first love, And acted unfaithfully, God pursued them with a loving kindness, bent on restoring the relationship, and that sought their own good. Now, I think we often approach the Old Testament with the assumption that we're much better than the Israelites. We see them as fickle, forgetful, idolatrous, and having an inferior faith to us enlightened moderns. But the way the Israelites constantly forget about their first love and run after idols isn't just their problem, it's really the human problem. We see a little bit of that problem in today's gospel reading, which is the feeding of the 4,000 from St. Mark chapter 8. Now, the really odd thing about this story is that it's actually the second miraculous feeding story that's included in Mark's gospel. The first occurred two chapters earlier in Mark chapter 6, which is commonly called the feeding of the 5,000. So why does Mark include two different feeding stories in his gospels? This is a question that has plagued scholars for quite some time now. Some have suggested that this story is repeated uh, really just because it's the same story that's been clumsily passed down to us by oral tradition. I think that view falls short in light of the differing details between the two accounts. There are 5,000 in the first account and 4,000 in the second. In Mark 6, Jesus uses five loaves and two fish, while in today's reading, he uses seven loaves, and the fish are there, but they're sort of added as an afterthought. In the first account, there are 12 baskets of bread left over, but after the second, there are seven Plus, if it's the same story, it would be superfluous to include it twice. Why say what you could say once by saying it twice? Which is my same philosophy on sermons, by the way. Why say what you need to say in 25 minutes when you could say it in 12? You're welcome. (laughs) The most likely explanation for the two feedings is that the first occurred with a primarily Jewish audience, while the second occurs with a primarily Gentile crowd. This shows us the continuity of Jesus' ministry with the Old Testament while emphasizing that the church, which is the true Israel of God, is open to all people, whether they're Jewish or not. But there is one part of the reading from today that I find alarming, and that is in verse 4. 
His disciples answered him, How can one feed these men with bread here in the desert? Now, I would understand asking the question if we went out to the picnic at Quiet Waters Park a few weeks ago and Mission Barbecue wasn't there to cater it for us. How can we feed all these people here in this park would be a valid question. But his disciples, as good Jews, should have remembered that there's scriptural precedent for God feeding people in the wilderness, as in with the manna in the desert. Even more than that, the disciples should have remembered literally two chapters ago when Jesus performed the exact same kind of miracle. Now, to be fair to them, perhaps more time had elapsed between the first feeding and the second feeding than Mark makes it seem. However, Jesus fed 5,000 people with five bread, five loaves of bread and two fishes. That some, seems like something you shouldn't forget. But this plays into a larger theme in the Gospels, namely that the disciples often forget things very quickly, that they often come off as clueless. Just like Israel forgot, so too the disciples forget things almost immediately after they happen. Yet despite their forgetfulness, God still provides food for the people. In fact, he even uses the disciples to help distribute the food to the people. So the miraculous feeding stories should always make us think of the Eucharist. Not only is there the allusion to the Old Testament manna, which certainly looks forward to the bread of life that we receive in communion, but also the accounts explicitly use Eucharistic language. In Mark 8, having given thanks, he broke the bread and gave them to his disciples. Compare that with what occurs at the Last Supper. He took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Taking, blessing, breaking, giving. These are the fundamental actions at the Last Supper, and they remain the fundamental actions at the Mass. So what do we make of this connection between the miraculous feeding and the Eucharist? Well, first we must admit, sadly, that today we aren't much better than our Israelite forebears or our apostolic predecessors. We often forget. We forget the call of the gospel for us to come and die amidst our hectic and busy schedules, amidst our constant desire to be entertained. We forget the significance of the life of the church and our quest for material wealth and political power. We forget the teachings of the faith Catholic in our rush to personal judgment and private interpretation of Scripture. But how did Christ respond to the forgetfulness of his apostles? By feeding them. How does he respond to the forgetfulness of those of us who make up his church? By feeding us in the Holy Eucharist. At the very center of the Mass is the idea of remembrance. And I'm told that's the best way to avoid forgetfulness. But remembrance is more than just thinking about something. It's about bringing the past into the present. It's about living into something. It's interesting because as neuroscientists have found that the same neurons fire when we are experiencing a memory as when the event actually happened. So there's something biological about the response there that mirrors what happened initially. So what we live into... In the Mass is the sacrifice of Christ, which is made present to us as we receive the precious body, which was given for us. And we drink that precious blood that was poured out for us. 
while we are forgetful, the sacrament of the altar makes us remember by allowing us to inhabit the story of redemption, by taking us up with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven into God's love as revealed to us in the sacrifice of his son. And this is why Holy Communion is the center and pinnacle of our worship. It's also why the traditional name for Holy Communion is Mass, a name which comes from the Latin word that means to send, because we are dismissed at the end of the Mass to be sent out into the world where we are to live out the fact that we're living sacrifices, emulating the sacrifice of our Lord in whatever context we find ourselves. And that leaves us with a challenge because it's very easy to settle into a routine, to go through the motions, and therefore it's very easy for us to forget the significance of what we're gathered to do. So the challenge is for us to be prepared, to be aware, to be present and mindful of what we're doing. The disciples asked, how can one feed these men with bread here in the desert? And the answer is only by a miracle. And that miracle happens for us every Sunday on the altar. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.